Well, good morning again. If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some spread around, some black Bibles nearby that you will see, and we'll be on page 923, page 923 in the black Bibles, Acts chapter 14. Our series is called Meet Jesus, and we've been looking through the Gospel of Luke and then now through the book of Acts, which is also written by Luke, and we've been looking at pictures of who Jesus really is through Jesus' conversations with different kinds of people in Luke, and now the sermons about Jesus in the book of Acts. And we've noticed that in different places, the gospel is uh, entered into in different ways. Uh, So the gospel doesn't change, Jesus doesn't change, but we're all different kinds of people. We have different starting points, we have different assumptions, and we see how the apostles take that into their thinking as they deliver the message. Uh, This week, We're calling it Jesus on the Outskirts, Jesus on the Outskirts. And what we're going to see is we're going to see in the beginnings of the mission out beyond the Jews to all the tribal people in first century Rome, we're going to see now Paul and Barnabas going to kind of the outer reaches of the empire. Um, This was not a tiny uh, unknown town, but it also wasn't one of the great leading cities. This would have been kind of a mid-sized city, not all that different than Central Texas, where there was a lot of commerce, there were a lot of things happening, but it also wasn't like culture leader kind of city uh, in the Roman Empire. So we could call this the outskirts. These are probably the normal people of the first century. They were agrarian people. Uh, They had their various uh, pagan worship practices, and we'll see all of that coming in to the way it all shakes out in in the story. Um, The other thing that I thought was interesting as I was preparing this is it is Mother's Day, and Paul uses... Uh, the ministry, the love of a mother for her children as a model for his own ministry. And we're going to see a lot of connection points today. So this isn't like a special Mother's Day sermon, but there are a lot of connection points. As I said earlier at the beginning, uh, we really believe, we firmly believe that in the New Covenant, as it says in Isaiah Isaiah 54, uh, that every woman is a spiritual mother, that every woman has the opportunity to be fruitful in a spiritual sense. And as I said, even the Apostle Paul takes on mothering as an image of what it is to share the gospel and help others grow up in the Lord. So that is our prayer for us as a church, that we would be that kind of place where people grow up in the Lord. Um, And hopefully we'll learn some things as well. We're going to read verses 8 through 18. We'll look at some of the more, more of the other verses at the end, but we'll start off with chapter 14, verses 8 through 18. It says, Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet, He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker, And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven 
and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifices to them. Let me pray for us and ask God to uh, teach us. God, we pray that you would teach us. We pray that your word would come alive to us by your Holy Spirit. We recognize our own, uh, our own propensity to not listen. And so we pray that you would open our, our ears, open our hearts, open our minds to receive your word. We thank you that you've proven to us that you love us through Jesus. So we pray now that we would believe it and that we would hear you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I have, uh, over the years, had a lot of friends that were missionaries in the field. I remember one friend of mine that was a missionary overseas for, for many years sharing his frustration uh, because he wasn't the best writer. He, he's really good at doing graphic stuff, but he wasn't the best writer. And you know, part of what a missionary does is they'll send newsletters back home to their supporters to say, this is what's going on. Um, and so he struggled with that. And as a matter of fact, the missions committee chairman at one particular church came up to him and said, hey, this guy, this other missionary writes really good newsletters. Why don't you look at them and why don't you pay attention to how he writes these great stories and maybe you could do newsletters more like that. Well, I started paying attention to this other great missionary story writer as well. I thought, well, man, if that's like the model, I'm going to start reading his letters. So there's another friend of mine as well. I was like, I need to pay more attention to his letters back home. And so I started reading more of his uh, missionary support letters and seeing the stories of what God was doing through this other second missionary's life. It was really quite amazing. God was doing really wild, crazy, insane, amazing things. God was using this man to help a lot of people. He was doing significant ministry. Uh, this guy was a medical doctor. Uh, he had a team of other people that had various skills that went with him. They brought a whole team setting up medical ministry and serving people and educating people and helping people way out in the outskirts of Africa. Um, They were kind of way out, far away from civilization, working with kind of simple tribes, people, uh, and through their gifts, through just the way that God had prepared them and educated them and gifted them, they were able to heal a lot of people and help a lot of people. Um, It was really pretty incredible. This guy actually, it got to the point where he was actually crowned as a king of one of the largest nomadic tribes in Africa. Uh, so these, these people loved him. They thought he was awesome. But there was a sad shift that started to take place. This guy began to believe what the folks he was helping thought about him. He, he began to believe he was as awesome as they thought he was. Um, and, and over time, over about a year period of time, where he started to fall into believing his own press, things got worse and worse. He began to fall into drug addiction so that he could maintain his pace of serving people and helping people and being everybody's answer to their problems. Fell into drug addiction, his marriage fell apart, and he ended up having to leave the mission field. It's a scary picture to me as someone who wants to help others that there's always this danger of thinking I'm the solution to people's problems. That was what he fell for. And that's what Paul and Barnabas were tempted with in this story, right? The people that Paul and Barnabas were helping began to worship them as gods. They began to praise them and say, this is Zeus and Hermes. They began to say, you guys are awesome. And I believe there was a momentary temptation that Paul and Barnabas felt, a tug that we all would feel when we're helping someone and they say, you are so awesome, you are so amazing, you are so wonderful, right? And whenever that happens to you, there's a part of us that's like, no, no, really, 
No, no, really, more, more. No, no, stop. We're, we're tempted to give into that and to begin to believe our own press. So we have this, this beautiful picture of what it looks like to do ministry in a way where you don't fall for uh, the myth that you're actually people's savior. God calls us to be like Jesus, to save and to help and to serve people without beginning to think that we are Jesus. And that's really, I think, what the text is about this morning. And again, that's a, a great text for Mother's Day because moms, you guys are on a day-to-day basis a savior for your kids. But you need to stay humble and remember that, no, you know what? Jesus is really their savior. God is really their God. I can't do everything. And so this is a good text for all of us to help people in any way to help us uh, see what it's like to do ministry. Um, as I said earlier, Paul uses mothering as a model of what it looks like to do ministry. Um, as he's doing ministry on the outskirts, I see an unfolding kind of layer of ministry that mirrors what I've seen in a book called When Helping Hurts. I've talked about this book before. I would recommend it to you guys. It's a book by Brian Fickert, and it talks about how to help hurting people in a way that doesn't hurt them more. And he talks about three layers of help. The first layer is relief. That's just like taking care of the immediate need in someone's life. And then the second layer is rehabilitation. That's helping people deal with the deeper heart issues that are going on in their life, helping them kind of rehabilitate their lives. And then the third level is development, and that's paying attention to the structural problems in the community around them. And so we see these layers taking place in this story. I think it's a great story that kind of fleshes out what we see in When Helping Hurts. The first layer is relief. We see relief on the outskirts. We see this in Paul helping and healing the man who's crippled. If you look back at the story again, it says, this man could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth. He'd been listening. It said he'd been paying attention and listening to Paul. And so this moment takes place. He's been listening to Paul. Paul looks at him intently. We would assume that the Holy Spirit just moves Paul to act in this way. And Paul looks at him and says in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Paul recognizes an immediate need, and in the Spirit, he answers that need, right? Um, I want to talk for just a second about miraculous healings. Just want to assure you that I believe that God can do whatever he wants to do. And we pray when people are sick, when people are struggling, that God would miraculously heal them. And we believe God can and still does do that kind of thing. We also, though, believe that it's not normal, right? Um, That by definition, for something to be miraculous, that means it doesn't happen every day. If something happens every day, it's not a miracle, right? And so we need to be careful with that. When we look at Scripture, we sometimes have the false idea that it's just, you know, page after page, verse after verse with miracles nonstop. When really, when you study the whole sweep of Scripture, there are three uh, eras, three time periods when a lot of miracles took place. One is the ministry of Moses and Joshua. And one is the ministry of Elijah and Elisha. And then one is the, uh, the ministry of Jesus and his apostles. So we see these big shifts in history when a lot of miracles seem to be taking place among God's people. But most of the Bible, most of the stories are God's people living in this kind of everyday world that we live in where that's just not normally how things happen. So I would say God is big. He is merciful. He's proved that through these stories. He's proved that especially through Jesus. So we can pray to him, ask for him to heal. And sometimes God does. But I just want to say, we don't necessarily expect that that happens all the time. I think the ordinary way that we relieve people's suffering is by just grabbing whatever's in our pockets, whatever's in our toolkit, whatever's in your 
educational experience, your background, whatever resources you have available, and that's what you use to relieve suffering in people's lives. And that becomes a pattern for God's people. In James 2, James says it this way. We should always be trying to relieve the suffering of others. In James 2, uh, 14 through 17, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. James says, What good is that? What good is that to just say, Hey, God bless you. See you later. If you say that without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is it? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So James challenges us that we should be offering physical relief to hurting people. That should just be a thing that we do. And that's a mark of the gospel because Jesus relieved our worst possible problem, that is our separation from God, by taking our sins upon himself By rising from the dead and giving us his life, if we trust Jesus, we can be seen as loved and as delighted in as Jesus himself. The the Father loves you in Christ. You're no longer separated from God. That's the most amazing relief we could have ever been offered. And so because of that reality of the gospel, we should be a people that just kind of overflow with relief and help and service to those around us. That should always mark us. And it's going to mark us in varying degrees, right? I mean, some people have particular gifts that other people don't have. Some of you can help people medically. Others of you can help people uh, in, um, you know, justice or police work or some of you as educators or whatever it might be. We have different ways that we help people. Uh, In the Old Testament, we saw kind of a standard uh, way of helping people and helping the poor, which was they would have farms and they would have what they called gleaning, where they always made the corners of their crops available for the poor. So I think that's kind of a good symbol for how we should operate, no matter what you're, you know, even if you don't have a farm, that you kind of like leave some, some margin in your life where you're just always kind of serving people. You set aside maybe some money, you set aside maybe some of your time with your expertise, whatever it might be, and you're always kind of offering to others what you have available. And that, again, is just a mark of God's people. We should be serving others. When I was a... Uh, A Boy Scout, I learned first aid. This is a very concrete way to help each other. Some of you may know first aid. I probably need to get recertified because it's been, you know, 30, 35 years. So, but you know, that's just a concrete way to help people, right? Someone's struggling, you help them right there. That's the definition of relief. As I said in this book, When Helping Hurts, it just talks about that first level of, I'm hungry, will you help me? I'm dying, will you help me? Whatever it may be, right? And again, we, we have varying degrees of expertise, varying abilities to serve people, But as Christians, we're just marked by, yeah, we help people because Jesus helped me. Um, We don't spend every hour of every day helping every person around us, right? There's there's just a normal balance we see in Scripture of we we live our lives, we do the things God's called us to, but we want to kind of leave a fringe in our life, leave the corners so that people can glean, and we're kind of always carving off part of our time or money or skill to help other people. And I think that's a beautiful thing, and I think Paul is modeling it here and that's how we should live our lives. Um, one of the things that's in the bulletin today is helping out with uh, the local foster care program and helping CPS with some of their work. You know, we're, that's one of the things that we do, one of the many ways that we serve others and help hurting people and offer relief. Another way is a couple of weeks ago, we had Compassion Sunday where you could sign up to su- serve children in third world countries through Compassion International. There's all kinds of different ways that you can do that. And I would ask you to pray and ask God, Um, what's the way that you want me to offer relief to the people around me? 
uh, what, what that looked like in my own life. You should pray and ask God to show you what that looks like. I think as we do that, though, we need to remember that there's a deeper need, right? Jesus met our deep and ultimate need of salvation, of reconciliation to the Father, and we need to remember that that's really the ultimate need that people have. And if we just stop with meeting concrete physical needs and we don't uh, strive to meet deeper needs, then the next step of rehabilitation will not take place. Uh, Rehabilitation is ongoing habits of healthy independence where you can take care of yourself, and then once you can take care of yourself, then you can meet other people's needs and help other people as well, and that can begin to multiply. So again, the book, When Helping Hurts, talks about this in great detail and helps make it make more sense. But there's kind of a turning point in the story where Paul and Barnabas helped people, and then they have a choice. Well, they allow that to be it. That's all that happens, and the people then worship them for the help they give. Or will they put themselves at the same level as the people they're helping? There's a quote from another great book by Paul Tripp called uh, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. And the quote is, we should always think of ourselves as people in need of change, helping people in need of change. We are people in need of change, helping people in need of change. If you just give immediate relief and you don't seek that deeper soul uh, work, that gospel rehabilitation of hearts, then you will allow yourself to be separate and say, I am a hero. I just saved that person. I just relieved that person. I just helped that person. You can start to think you are this Greek god like Barnabas and Paul may have been tempted to. So they start worshiping them as Greek gods, right? It says, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, and Paul, they called Hermes. Um, that's because it says here, because he was the chief speaker, Hermes was the one that spoke for Zeus, right? So Barnabas was the quiet one on the side. Paul was doing more talking, so they considered Paul to be Hermes, the messenger of the gods. It says in verse 13, the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. So these pagan people were saying, hey, you're the gods we've been waiting for. And as I said, in in the text, it, it makes it pretty clear that it wasn't like, and Paul and Barnabas wrestled with it for a few days, and they accepted worship for a week, and then they changed their mind. I mean, it says they immediately tore their clothes and were like, no, we're not gods. Um, but I just want to acknowledge they were people like us. They were people that are probably tempted in many ways like we are, and there was probably a moment in their hearts where they thought, hey, this is pretty cool, right? And I know that that can happen to us as parents. That can happen, like your kids think you're the greatest person in the world, and you're like, well, I am pretty awesome, you know? Maybe you're a teacher, and there's that day when everything goes right, and you think, yeah, I, I pretty much am the greatest teacher in the world, right? You're a soldier, you, act, you help someone, they think you're awesome. There's a temptation we have to begin to believe how awesome we are. And I think we need to follow a pattern of Jesus, that, who even though he was the ultimate, awesome, real God of the universe, he humbled himself, and he came and stooped at our level. So that's the That's kind of the turn towards rehabilitation that we see. As the story turns, we see a story turning from just simple relief to rehabilitation of the heart. And this comes in Barnabas and Paul refusing to be worshipped. I have an illustration of this, and that's Oscar Awards. Any of you ever watched the Academy Awards where the the Oscars are given away for actors? Great. Have you ever seen that, some of you? Okay. None of you watch TV or anything. That's awesome. Uh, 
Here's one from 1972, so a few of you were alive then. And John Wayne won the award for True Grit, right? Great Western movie. And this is known as one of the classic examples of a humble award acceptance speech, right? People love it. They've actually done research now, like psychological researchers have done research on this. People love it when you win a great award and you're humble and you suppress your joy, right? And you act very somber about it. And you even say things like, I'm so humbled. Yeah, that's what people say. Even though you just got recognized for something great. Isn't that kind of weird? Like in this moment, your moment of greatness, you say, I feel small. Because really you're trying to suppress that uh, feeling that you have of wanting to just accept it all and say, I truly am great. Thank you for recognizing it. Thank you for finally seeing how great I am. There's a lot of uh, pop singers that actually do that, right? Um, another guy, James Cameron, was an actor, and when he won his award, he was just like, woohoo! And he just celebrated, and he was like, I'm on top of the world. You know, it was like screaming and celebrating, and he's noted as one of the worst award acceptance speech givers of all time. So it's interesting. We, we recognize this in a lot of subtle psychological ways. So researchers have shown this, that we desire for people, even when they are great, even when we maybe just voted for them to get the award, we, we appreciate them being humble about it, saying, I don't really deserve this, I'm humble, not celebrating too much, because what they're doing is they're closing the gap. They're coming towards us. Instead of distancing themselves from us, we already know we're losers and they're winners, right? So they're distancing the gap and coming towards us and saying, no, I'm, I'm like you. I'm not really that awesome. And I think that's actually where the gospel turn takes place in this text. Paul and Barnabas say, uh, verse 14, you look at verse 14, they say, when the apostles Paul and Barnabas heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd. Um, Just as an aside, generally Luke is giving us a compressed story, right? He's not giving us every single detail. Any writer about anything always gives you the details they think are important. And we're told that these guys were praising them in Lyconian Paul and Barnabas may not have immediately even understood what they were saying, right? There seems to be some time elapsing because the the temple priest had to go and get um, sacrifices from the temple, which it might have been very close, but you know, you just, you assume there might have been some time elapsing and maybe Paul and Barnabas didn't immediately hear what they were saying because it was being spoken in Lyconian and then the priest shows up with sacrifices and then maybe they're starting to get it. You know, we don't know how it exactly unfolded, but at some point Paul and Barnabas get it and they refuse to accept the worship. And I believe this is the turn from relief to rehabilitation, from I'll just help you with this uh, sickness to I'll help you with your heart issue, your need for the gospel. Men, verse 15, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your heart with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice. So the turn is, we're not gods. We're people just like you. We're broken just like you are. We're people in need of change, trying to help other people in need of change. We're sinners in need of a Savior. Let us tell you about the Savior. 
And I believe that's, that's where the turn takes place. No matter what your ministry is, if you're in education or if you're in the military or if you're in law or if you're in a full-time vocational ministry, whatever it looks like, the way that you turn from just making it about helping with these concrete physical needs to helping people realize their need for spiritual change is when you close the gap and say, I'm, I'm just like you are. I'm just like you are. And I also need a hope beyond this particular uh, season of healing, right? Now I can walk, but I have a spiritual problem that's even deeper than my feet. Now I've learned something from you, teacher, but I have a, a deeper knowledge that I need to learn from the God of the universe. Now I'm safe because of your protection, but we have a spiritual, permanent, eternal protection we need from the God who is the only true fortress in the universe. So that turn comes with us closing the gap I'm not a hero. I'm not better than you. I'm a man just like you are. I'm a woman just like you are, and I need the same God that I'm pointing you to. That's where the gospel turn takes place, and we move towards real rehabilitation instead of just thinking, yeah, you know what? I am awesome. You should worship me, right? That's what often takes place, and again, you see this in the book, When Helping Hurts. When we believe our own press, when we think we're awesome and we really are changing lives just by feeding someone or just by changing their temporary situation, we're actually missing out on all that God has to teach us through them because we're still people in need of change. We're still people that need to learn. When you go to help someone way out on the outskirts that doesn't have what you have, they're still made in the image of God and you still have something to learn from them. So no matter how much of an expert you are in any area of life, you have something to learn from other people because they're made in the image of God. So you bring what you have, but as you're giving it, you say, I'm, I'm a person just like you. And maybe I had this or that in my toolkit, but what we both need is the God of the universe coming down and giving us himself. And that's the gospel. The other thing that we see here is the, the thing we've been seeing throughout Acts and that that's, he speaks it in ways that they can understand. These are agricultural people. So he talks about the seasons and the rains and uh, the kind of physical ways that God has manifested himself in creation, right? Paul speaks a different way when he's in Athens. He quotes their poets, and he talks about philosophy, right? So he's gonna, you're going to speak a different way about the gospel to a philosopher than you would to a farmer, and we continue to see that fleshed out as Paul speaks to different people in different places. But I think the big lesson that God has for us here is don't believe our own press. Don't believe how awesome you are just because you've got some gifts, but remember that you're a people that you're a person in need of change, helping other people in need of change. I also want to just stop for a minute. How are we doing on time? We got time. Stop for a minute and define what is called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is a gospel that kind of never quite makes that turn to our deeper need for reconciliation to God. It substitutes physical relief for our spiritual reconciliation with God. So I wanted to go to kind of an outside source so it wasn't just me dogpiling on this movement. This is a movement that's got tentacles in in every branch of Christianity that exists. And what it does is it says that really what you just need is physical blessings now. You, You don't need as much this reconciliation to God through Christ. And it's murky because there are principles of blessing that the scripture, uh, the scripture promises to us, right? Like when you read the book of Proverbs, there's a general sense of if you work hard and are generous and you do what's right and you brush your teeth and you wake up early 
you're going to be blessed, right? It doesn't say brush your teeth in Proverbs, but I mean, it's that, that general flow. Like if you live your life this well, there will be blessing. That's how God has wired the universe, but that's law. That's not gospel. That's just how the world works. It doesn't always work that way. It usually works that way. And so what prosperity gospel teachers do is they switch that your greatest hope is no longer Jesus. Your greatest hope is blessing now. So here's what the Lausanne movement says about it. I'll just read this definition. The Lausanne movement says, we define prosperity gospel as the teaching that believes that believers have a right to the blessings of health and wealth and that they can obtain these blessings through positive confessions of faith and the sowing of seeds through the faithful payments of tithes and offerings. So that's putting all your all your eggs in that basket, right? So you are you are owed blessing now, and if you just give faithfully to the church, you'll get blessing now. Or if you just have enough faith, or you just say it positively enough, you'll get blessing now. Turns it into a formula, right? Instead of saying, well, there's a general principle of when you're generous, good things will happen, but our real hope is in the future. Our real hope is in Jesus making all things right. And the way we live out that hope now is that through Christ, we're now reconciled to the Father. And so because we've been forgiven of our sins, and because our heart now knows that we're loved and provided for, we can live our lives generously for others, whether we suffer or not. We're not just doing it so we get blessings now. We're doing it knowing that we are taken care of in the future, and that enables us to live through the good days and the bad days. Do we want blessings now? Yeah, we all do. That's normal, and that's appropriate to even pursue blessings now. What the prosperity gospel does is says, that's it. That's the gospel are the blessings now. And that's not the whole gospel. So be careful, be aware that this is happening and that it's kind of leaking into every kind of denomination. There's no denomination, there's no group of Christians that are immune to it. It's kind of working its way in and it's a particularly American sort of heresy because we're the richest country in the world. So because we're the richest country in the world, we often confuse riches with the gospel. The, The last thing that we see as the story unfolds is development. Right? So in When Helping Hurts, it talks about relief, first stage, rehabilitation, dealing with the heart issues, and then development, dealing with the kind of societal structural issues. And the way I see this lived out in the text is Paul uh, going back and teaching and then him appointing elders in every city so that there's a structure there uh, to help the long-term health of the community even after he's gone. Okay? So let's read the story and see how this unfolds in verses 19 through 23. We see development. On the outskirts, verse 19, Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Um, that kind of does away with the prosperity gospel, right? If Paul is the leader of Christianity after Jesus' resurrection, and he's constantly getting stoned and drug out of town, um, that's a good indicator that the prosperity teachers are wrong, Right? And who's the founder before Paul? It's, it's Jesus, right? Who gave up all the riches of heaven to, to die for us, to suffer, and to not live a life of prosperity here and now. So again, two great examples that the prosperity gospel is a lie. Verse 20 says, When the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. On the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Paul was crazy. Verse 21, When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples... They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many 
tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Again, reinforcing, this is not a prosperity gospel. It's not just about having your feet healed. That's where it started. They were meeting needs. But he's saying it's through many tribulations that you will enter the kingdom of God. Verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, then they committed them or commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So they began building a structure. The structure starts with more teaching, more gospel. Again, scriptures a lot of times connect uh, ministry to mothering. And one of the uh, images that's used is that the gospel is like, like nursing. It's like milk, right? It's like what helps a baby to survive. It's what gives us life. We need spiritual food. And so they're teaching the gospel. They're helping the disciples understand. They're strengthening them. They're firming them up. They're helping them kind of walk on their own. This rehabilitation process is taking place. And the more that grows through the culture, the more structure and strength the culture will have. I have a picture here that's a good example of strengthening, and that's rebar and concrete. Any of you ever worked with uh, concrete before? Uh, Some of you? Okay, we have a non-hand-raising service today. Uh, So steel reinforces concrete, right? Concrete's strong. Steel is strong. You put them together. It's like peanut butter and chocolate, right? It's even stronger. It's even better. Uh, And so there's this reinforcement that takes place as the rebar is put into the concrete, and that is what Paul and the disciples and the apostolic team are doing. They're going back to preach more. They're going back to encourage them. There are terms that are used uh, in the English text. It says preaching the gospel. The Greek word is literally gospeling, right? So we want to be a culture where we are just gospeling each other. It means we're reminding each other to believe the truth of who Jesus is. It uses another term here, making disciples. That's just the verb discipling. They're discipling each other. They're helping each other be followers of Jesus. It says they strengthened souls, right? They're strengthening souls and they're encouraging them. They're encouraging them to do two things. One is to continue in faith and the other is to remember that through tribulation you'll enter the kingdom of God. And so just the ongoing work of strengthening the church, of putting rebar in the concrete of our faith is reminding each other to continue in faith. That's part of the ongoing work of faithing, of believing, is us encouraging each other, continue to believe, because you're not going to feel like it. You're not going to feel like it a lot of days. When when you're sick, when you get that diagnosis, you're not going to feel like trusting that God is really good. You're going to want those blessings now, but, but trust that he is good, and you're headed for something bigger than just right here and right now. When things fall apart at work, when things go bad in your relationships, when your family is struggling, you're going to struggle to believe. And so part of what the church does is we encourage each other and we say, keep believing. We encourage each other to continue in faith. And then this other great picture he gives is that we encourage each other. Again, this doesn't even make sense in an American context or in a prosperity gospel context. They were encouraging each other that through tribulation they would enter the kingdom of heaven. We'd be like, that's not very encouraging. I'd rather you say through great ease and comfort you will enter the kingdom of heaven, right? I mean, if I could give you that message, I would, right? But that's not the message. Through tribulation, you'll enter the kingdom of heaven. There is comfort. The kingdom is coming, but it's not right here and right now. And then finally, they appoint elders in every town. We believe this is the pattern in the New Testament. We see in 1 Timothy 3, we see in Titus chapter 1, we see in 1 Peter chapter 5, we see more details in Acts chapter 20, that there were always multiple elders in every town. And that a word that was used interchangeably with elder was a word that's sometimes translated bishop. It's the word overseer, literally overseer, which would have been more of a Greek term, kind of like superintendent. 
So you've got elder, you've got this word superintendent, overseer, and then you've got this other word, we sometimes say pastor, uh, which is literally shepherd. Pastor is just the Latin word for shepherd. Uh, and so there were these three titles used interchangeably. This other fourth title sometimes used, it was just leader or manager. And so there was always a multiple layer of leaders, never just one leader. In the times in church history, whenever there was one central leader, he was always working with a team, right? So Paul stands out as central leader, but he's, he's got Barnabas by his side, and he picks up Luke, and he picks up Timothy, and they're working together, and they're helping each other out. And Paul's in jail later in his life, and he's like, Timothy, come to me. I'm dying. I need your help, right? There's always this teamwork of leadership that's taking place. Um, one of the things that I want to remind you of mothers, and really any leader, but mothers specifically, this is Mother's Day, is it's not all on you. It's not all on you. Part of your job as a mother is to lead your kids to other leaders, to find other faithful ones that can pour good stuff into their lives. One of the ways I want to thank my mom publicly is that she made that her work. Um, I was, she was a single mom. I was raised to a large degree by elders at Temple Bible Church, these godly men that poured into my life when my dad wasn't there close by. And so just remember that there are always other leaders, just as Paul built the structure into how he set up churches. There were multiple leaders, multiple elders who were shepherding, encouraging, reminding each other to believe, reminding each other to trust Jesus. Your job as mothers, your job as commanders, your job as teachers, your job as whatever you're doing is to lead people to health. And oftentimes the way you lead people to health is you bring other leaders and other healthy influences into their life that build into them. And so that's part of what church community should look like as well. We have multiple elders here and other pastors here, and we have small group leaders, and we have Sunday school teachers, and we have these layers of leadership, and all of our jobs together as a team is to build health into each other. And so that's part of how we build long-term development in a church, just like you would in any any of the industries that you work in personally. You want to set up other leaders. You don't want the whole thing to be on your back. If the whole thing's on you, you're going to die and it's all going to end, right? You want to multiply that effort by training up others and trusting the ministry to others and multiplying what God is doing. I want to conclude by remembering um, the story I talked about at, at the beginning that this friend, this acquaintance really, that was this missionary that began to believe that he was awesome and as awesome as people thought he was, he fell. Pride comes before the fall. Jesus Christ, who is the one who is king of the universe, who is God become flesh. It says in Philippians, he didn't hold on to that. He didn't cling to that, but he held that loosely. He was willing to give up his equality with God and become a man like us. And that's the model of what leadership looks like. That's the model of what ministry looks like is we serve others because we believe that God has served us in Jesus. So I want to just close with these words from Hebrews 13. These words in Hebrews 13 remind us as we're doing ministry on the outskirts of life, maybe we're doing ministry with broken people and we don't think people notice or we don't think people know what's going on. Remember Jesus, it says, Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. We don't just pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and say, I'm just going to do this. I'm going to serve others. We recognize that we have a God who served us in that way first. He suffered outside the camp, so now we can go outside the camp. We can do ministry on the outskirts as well because of what Jesus did for us. Let me pray for us, and then we'll 
respond in worship together. God, thank you that you loved us so much. You sent Jesus to the outskirts of the universe. You sent him into our neighborhoods, into our world, into the brokenness and pain of this world that we live in. We thank you, God, that you're a God that understands our suffering. You're a God that understands our anguish, that you've served us through Christ. We thank you that you took care of our sin on the cross, and we thank you that you've taken care of our future through the resurrection of Christ. We pray that you'd help us to believe it. Help us to continue in faith. Help us to remember that through tribulation, through trial, through struggle, we will enter the kingdom of God. Help us to hang on to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.